sound people. Thanks heaps for joining me again. Uh, it's been so long since I've done an episode because I just graduated from film school. Uh, for a few months, I was doing nothing but working flat out on a couple of projects. Really proud of what my cohort made. Since I graduated, I've just been trying to work as much as possible, break into this crazy industry. So, you know, if you're a soundie in Sydney listening to this, for the love of God, please hit me up because I have a really expensive habit called eating. Um, today's interview is from over a year ago. It's one of the ones I did for the first Mad Max episode. David White is an Aussie sound designer who's had a long and illustrious career, but is best known for being sound designer on Fury Road, for which he won the Oscar for sound editing along with Mark Mangini. He's a super interesting guy, lovely to talk to, and it would have been such a shame to only hear what was in that first episode. So here's the whole thing. I just want to say, I'm sorry that I sound like a fucking robot in this interview. Um, basically, I was just thinking about how things would cut together uh, with all the other interviews that I had done for episode one. So instead of like, you know, having a naturalistic conversation that's interesting to listen to, I was just rattling questions off a piece of paper. So I sound like an idiot, but David White is still a super interesting guy who came up with some great answers. Once again, if you have any feedback for me, please do leave a review on uh, the iTunes podcast app or send me an email at contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com. Here's David White. Hope you enjoy. Uh, I got into sound as a career uh, after a long process of uh, doing a lot of acting at, um, when I was at school. I was always on stage, loved it. I was in a lot of performances and uh, also I played guitar a lot and was obsessed by wearing headphones and listening to music and uh, it just seemed like a natural progression to get into sound. Uh, I actually went, um, I did a uh, interview, uh, an audition at NIDA when I was uh, a very young, sort of 17-year-old or something like that. And uh, that was so terrifying of an experience that I went, you know what, I think I'm going to work on the other side of the camera. And uh, so I did a year's worth of volunteer work at uh, Metro TV in Paddington, which later became Metro Screen. And um, you know, I made a film with some other people and we all got into the film school. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> so what drew you to working in sound in film as opposed to just audio engineering? What what do you like about sound in film specifically? Sound in film, I, I recall some very significant moments of my life where I was impacted by a soundtrack. Probably the most profound was Igmar Bergman's Persona, which I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a very, uh, it's a psychological mystery thriller. It's about, it's about a two or three hander, you know, a woman who's virtually comatose for most of the movie and her carer in an isolated spot. It's a very bleak film, but the, uh, the way the sound works in that film is so powerful. And uh, when I first saw that, I would have been 15, I suppose, 15 or 16. And when, you know, when the movie finished, I, I knew that I wanted to work in sound. You know, it was it was a, a moment that film. The way to look at look at sound, uh, I mean, this is going to be a very long answer. <laughs> I'm warning you. Uh, 
Okay, so the best your film will ever be without a soundtrack is like the worst school play you've ever seen. That's as good as it'll ever be. It's rough around the edges, doesn't matter how good it looks. The audience will sit there and watch it and go, yeah, it's pretty good, but... And they won't really know why it's not impacting them very much. You take away that crap sound and replace it with sound that follows the emotional current of the actors and the narrative, and you embellish that and support it such that the audience knows exactly what they should be thinking about on a subconscious level. No one's ever going to notice it. But it's the sound component of a a film or a, um, a properly done drama is the uh, gives gives us the subconscious signposts to access the actual story. So, and that's that's I think what my skill is in sound, in particular. Uh, a lot of people have it, and I know I do it fairly well, which is to identify the story and make the soundtrack work sympathetically with that storytelling so that we understand the narrative so that those key moments are hit i mean my soundtracks and most most other sound designers soundtracks really we ought to be getting a cut of the uh, you know like a return like the composer would get for composing music because essentially we do the same things you know it's not just synchronizing a door handle and opening and closing a door that is not what a soundtrack is. Uh, soundtracks all got all this mood and moments and when you take out the music, when you play an effect loud, when you do et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are all choices that the sound designer or mixer or whatever makes and they're crucial in um, the story being understood by the audience. When you first saw like the rough cut of Mad Max, it, uh, Fury Road, was there anything that you thought this film really needs this in the soundtrack or it needs to embellish on this in the narrative? Well, let's just say that Mad Max Fury Road was not a conventional filmmaking process. There was no rough cut to look at ever. That's not how the film was made. Uh, After um, George and the team had finished the shoot, uh, they spent very many months assembling the first part of the movie. So George's idea was to, with with Margie Sixel, to cut it um, sequentially. He wanted not a rough cut of the film, but a fine cut as they went along. That was the intention. So when I got onto the film, it was a little bit of live action, quite a bit of animatics, because there were scenes that came from the Citadel, which were not shot at that stage. So it was a, it was a fine cut of some live action material and a fine cut of some animatics, if you like, um, that just gave a tone. So there was only, you know, three or four minutes of footage when I first got onto the film. And, uh, you know, it just blew me away. I remember George George and Margie played me, you know, the first few minutes and George looked around at me all enthusiastic and said, you know, what do you think sort of thing. And I, I was virtually speechless because I was just like, what did I just see? You know, it had a lot of impact on me. What does a sound designer do on a film as big as Mad Max with a crew as big as Mad Max? Were, were you kind of a delegator to other uh, people? Look, um, being a sound designer, sound supervisor, is it's, it's not a really uh, glamorous job. There's a lot of work to do. 
So there, yes, there is a lot of organising to be done. There's a lot of delegation to be done. There are lots of meetings to be had. There are a lot of bushfires to be put out. Um, from a managerial perspective, obviously, if you have a big team, the, the key thing is to remove the obstacles so that your team can do what they need to do and, and ensure that everybody's on the same page doing the same thing. Um, so, you know, sound designer, can, can I be across everything? No, it's too big, too big. So you have to delegate. There were certain things that I didn't want to do on that film. So, for example, I didn't want to be lumbered with all of the vehicles. There's so many vehicles, and each vehicle does so many things. Um, so, I, you know, I just chose a couple of vehicles that I wanted to do, but otherwise I said, no. Nah. You know, and Big Bang handled most of the vehicles, and Kate Carl handled the war rig. So, no, I, I chose... I wanted to be more involved with the madness of Max, really. So, you know, I, I dealt with the sound design components of what's going on in Max's head, uh, his perspective with relating to the world and a lot of close, you know, affected things from his perspective all the way through the film, uh, his memories, what's going on there. That's all stuff that I've done. Um, that was what really interested me was what's going on for Max, Specifically, rather rather than just getting a chunky car sound, that that was more interesting. Um, so that and you know, uh, I like to be well, not like to be. I think that it's an invaluable thing for any film, for uh, in post production to have a producer that's on board, a director that's on board, uh, a picture editor that's on board, a sound designer that's on board, working together, communicating. Because what happens is that you realise along the way um, what's working and not working, and those voices can assist in, you know, diluting something, or I should say, make it more accurate as a as a piece. And particularly working with uh, such great people as George Miller and Margaret Sixall, uh, these are people who not only being amazing um, are totally into collaboration. And we'll listen to people's opinions and go, oh, really? Is that what's happening? Oh, okay. We, you know, that's that's the ideal, not uh, a scenario where people are going, oh, no, 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 that's my idea, blah, 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 which um, one may expect of a person like, um, or people that really know what they want. But um, George certainly encapsulates for me the type of director who not only knows what he wants, but uh, is open to reality and to feedback i get heavily involved in the dialogue track um and let, let's not just say mad max but on all the films that i'm on um you know believability like if i was in the audience i put myself in the shoes of the audience all the time and if a line of dialogue sounds like crap or like i don't believe it i'll say i don't believe that line of dialogue you know and put, oh maybe we should re-record that you know rather than keep my mouth closed you know, I think that if the if the director winds up being at their premiere screening and they're sitting there in the audience and one of those clangers goes by, a clanger line of dialogue that was always on the nose and you're in the theatre at your premiere and the person next to you in the audience goes, oh, God, did you hear that? Yeah, I'm the guardian of those sorts of lines and I make sure as, as much as possible to identify those things that don't really gel with... Um, 
with the character. I mean, for example, in Mad Max, Immortan Joe, uh, Hugh Keith Moon, who is just amazing. What a what a what a character that man is. The first time we had him do the um, the dialogue for that scene for his you know his big speech at the front there, he was a you know he was a bit of a Mister Tough guy. And I mentioned to George and Margie, you know, I don't buy it. You know, what we're seeing here is an old guy with, you know, all these sores on his body and people are helping him. So he should sound frail, you know, and like he's trying to sound tough but frail. So we redid him like that and that's what's in the film, you know. And I think that gives us more of a clue to his character rather than just being some tough guy up there doing a speech because his voice breaks a few times and, you know, I think we get more about his character by just that re-delivery. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so that the part of the role of the sound designer is, well, I should say the role of the sound designer is very much to identify all the sound components of the film and make sure that all of them are working. Music, sound effects, dialogue, everything. So um, with the dialogue for you, it's not just about the sound of the dialogue, but also about the dramatic... Oh, uh, the the sound of the dialogue is secondary for me. Sorry if I was a bit loud there. But the sound of the dialogue is absolutely secondary to me. The first thing about it is what is it communicating? Do I believe it? That's the first thing. If I believe it, yeah, if I can get away with the sound quality, no worries, I'll use it. But I don't listen to a line of dialogue and just automatically go, oh, well, that sounds okay, we'll use it or that sounds bad, so we won't use it. I go, hmm, does it fit? You know, I mean, the other thing, so many directors, you know, I've done a lot of um, dialogue replacement over my, you know, 35-year-odd career, and generally directors go, oh, I don't want ADR, oh, which is replaced dialogue. I don't want that, that's contrived. And I go, seriously, that's contrived? Because what we're looking at when we look at, say, three shots in a film... You know, someone walks into the room. There are two people sitting at the dining room table. This character has a few lines of dialogue to say, and then there's an argument, and off that character goes. Right. How was the scene, the scene shot? Okay, we've done the establisher of the dude that walks in the door, you know, saying his first line when he's at the door. Then we've done a pick-up as he comes close to the table, uh, and we've shot that one and then the, the mid-shot. So all of these lines of dialogue, which are then structured together to sound like they're a flow, they've all been shot an hour apart. So to these directors that say uh, ADR is contrived, I say get a grip on reality. Your actor is going to have a far better go at communicating the intent of those lines if we let them say the four lines as a run. You know, morning, Martha. You know, about that conversation we had last night, you're right. I don't love you anymore. I'm out of here. You know, as opposed to shooting that in three or four goes where the actor never gets to say those lines altogether. So I'm very much into, uh, you know, if I hear a bunch of lines in there, they're good, but they could be better. Well, let's go again. Let's give it a go. And that doesn't mean we'll use the ADR or the replaced dialogue. It just means if we can get it better, let's give it a go. And if the sync's better, well, we'll use that, you know, whatever. But there's a lot to be done with dialogue. And certainly dialogue quality is not the first thing that I think about. 
do you ever struggle to get directors to listen to your opinion no. on the <laughs> Sorry, finish your question. Well, do you ever struggle to get directors to listen to your opinion um, on the dramatic elements as opposed to being seen as more as like the sound guy? And that's what you do. You do uh, look, I think, um, uh, look, I, as far as communicating the messages that I've got about a, an individual's film, I approach it from a point of view of I'm working for you on your film and I, along with the rest of the team, are trying to make your film as good as it can possibly be. So that's where I come from, not a place of, oh, I know better than you or anything like that. It's about, hey, I see this as a problem. And what I generally find is that directors go, thank you for your honesty because most people working on a film are too terrified to say what they really think to a director, such as, you know that thing you got that character to do? It sucks. Let's cut it out of the film. I'll say that to somebody, and generally they'll either not cut it out of the film and tell me to be quiet, or go, hmm, and have a bit of a think about it. So it's, it's not about arrogance or anything like that. It's about being clear. And as I was saying to you before, I try to wear the hat of the audience when I'm coming at a soundtrack. And it's not just the sound that you can't assess sound in isolation from the narrative or the images. It's a, it's a total unit. So, you know, these things aren't separate. They've all got to work together. And uh, directors, as they grow in their careers, realise that. You know, so they're quite happy to embrace... Um, you know, considered opinions. That's not to say that people should just be, you know, banding about their opinions, thinking that everything should be listened to. I wouldn't say that for a second. I'll say um, what I feel needs to be said at the appropriate time. <laughs> so do you, do you remember um, how much uh, production sound of the cars was delivered to you by the on-site recordists, and how much did you use of that? Uh, let me approach this answer a little bit differently to how it's been phrased. Uh, the, the location sound recording for Mad Max Fury Road uh, is probably the most difficult sound recording job in history. Let's just say that. Uh, I think Ben Osmo and his team, you know, Mark, etc., did an extraordinary job of capturing anything because for a start to grab a, you know, what in the film might be a half second shot of, um, you know, a camera moving past, you know, Furiosa as she's driving the war rig, you know, to get that shot, you've got, you know, that whole armada of vehicles. They've all got a, you know, let's get an eight mile stretch of desert and let's get all the vehicles up to, you know, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometres an hour, and make sure they get all into the same position as they should be, and let's get the camera vehicle driving past and capturing a shot. Uh, eight miles later, you're eight miles away. Turn around, drive all the way back, and then do it again. So to get these, you can imagine that if there's a line of dialogue being delivered, Imagine the problems that the sound recorder has trying to capture something in that environment. 
let alone the fact you're all moving. Where's the sound person in a van driving, you know, a mile behind with all these satellite connections, the radio mics and all that? I mean, ginormously difficult job. Um, now, Ben, uh, amazingly... Uh, did these very complicated uh, recording setups in, for example, a war rig. He had, you know, microphones in the in the little petrol thing at the back that's carrying stuff. He had microphones in the tanker itself, all over it, in the cab, all that, and then microphones on the people. There are microphones everywhere, and some of the recordings are absolutely brilliant. Uh, one of the totally sync sound with virtually no embellishment in it whatsoever by anybody is the moment that the uh, the petrol tanker, I mean, the little petrol pod on the back of the war rig locks up, the tyres lock up, and it's being dragged along with the sound. That is the sync sound. That's the sync sound of it dragging along, that that tone. Just perfect. It looks, it sounds like it looks. Um, that's an example. Now, <clears throat> you might say, oh, so there's one sound. No, no, no. you got to understand that there are so many sounds recorded for this film as there was so much visual footage, like over 400 hours of visual footage, let alone sound. So you can imagine how much trawling through there is to do to find what what you need. So um, the other thing is that it's, on one hand, it's, you know, if you've got a vehicle that moves from here to here to here, sometimes it's easy to just get, you know, some wild recordings and sort of structure that so that it does the thing whereas it might be more difficult to get the actual sync sound and make them connect. We had a variety of that in the film with the uh, sounds recorded from location and stuff that we've embellished to join it to make it feel natural. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ensure that we did with the soundtrack was make it as believable as possible because we're talking about a world where nothing works except for old things that are working again. Uh, and there's nothing alive. So, um, you know, there are no, there's no life in any of the atmospheres, no insects, nothing like that. Uh, and the, all of the machinery had to be basic and believable, you know. So, uh, and clunky and edgy and not perfect. You know, there's a lot of rough, there are a lot of rough edges in Mad Max, utterly intentional to make it, you know, believable. Um, yeah, anyway, getting back to um, the sync sound, you know, the these uh, large projects, you know, you need, you need to do temp mixes along the way to, to see where you are and, you know, Warner Brothers wants to see where the film is and so on. So you need to put together a temp as you go. So there were quite a few of those for, the, for Mad Max and... Um, you know, in the early stages of doing those, of course, the only dialogue that um, that we had to mix in was the dialogue recorded on location. And, you know, in spite of the incredibly noisy circumstances under which it was recorded, and you're talking about V16 engines at high revs with somebody delivering a line of dialogue two metres away from the engine. You know, so very, very difficult recording situations. But in those temps, I was able to use that noisy dialogue to get us through the temps. And there were there was only a couple of scenes where the dialogue was recorded without that type of noise in the background. For example, where Max first meets Furiosa. Not that it's a dialogue scene, but that's a quiet scene. 
also when they get to the green place and they have a conversation with the the women that they meet out there perfectly recorded stuff that material was all absolutely fine from uh, for other reasons that stuff was ADR'd in the end so that wasn't used but the reasons for that are different to you know the recording now the look the recording the amount of recordings that we had to choose from in the film was extraordinary and i think ben did an amazing job in getting it recorded do you remember like how big the files were or whatever how much there was how many hours oh no i can't recall a figure but you know you can imagine they were shooting out there for what six months something like that you know there's a fair amount of stuff and yeah. they weren't they weren't sitting on the hands they were recording stuff you know? yeah so there, there were piles of amazing effects that Ben and the um, second unit, uh, Oliver Machen, uh, recorded. Um, so you talk about how you had to capture a world where, like, nothing's working. As number four of a franchise, uh, did you were you consciously trying to make it sound like the pre the previous films, or were you trying to follow on from any aesthetic? Uh, no, I, d- I was not trying to make the film sound like the previous films. At the same time, I wasn't trying to make it sound like it didn't belong. So, you know, look, from a sonic point of view, you know, the first Mad Max is very gritty. It's just, you know, motorcycles and cars, you know. So there's an aesthetic there that's very raw. You know, I mean, let's talk about the visual style for a moment. So... George and the team went to extraordinary lengths to do practical stunts. And, you know, you watch the film and you go, oh, my God, they're real stunts. You can see how the vehicles flip through the air the way they would. Now, you do it in VFX. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't connect the same with you. And you go, oh, yeah, the vehicle's flipping in the air. There's a very, there's a very realness that Fury Road has as you look at it. And there's a realness that it has when you hear it because it's all gritty, ugly stuff. You know, for example, the, um, you know, the buzzards, the, the thing, the VW sort of looking car with the spikes on it. So the, the engine for that was, you know, I had an angle grinder and grinding into a car door and, you know, making rhythms out of that. That's the, that's the sound of that vehicle is the angle grinder, you know, rhythms there and stuff which works with the engine, makes it gritty and edgy, but it's got a mechanicalness, a, a realness that you can feel. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of, you know, I'm not trying to dumb it down, but trying to be very earthy and, you know, as familiar as your back shed, if you've ever been into the back shed, you know. So it was trying to make it very much like playing with dirt, you know. It, and, and, you know, that it... it it had that feeling at the end of it, you know. I, I remember Margaret Sixel and I, we, we were in London and uh, the two of us just collapsed on the ground in Hyde Park in a field of, you know, this little patch of flowers and we were just sort of looking outside going, oh, oh, you know, after the whole thing was over. And it really felt like we were in the dirt and the sand and the desert for a couple of years and we'd just been parachuted out of that you know it felt, it felt like we needed to have a wash 
you know, that's, <laughs> that's how cool. it felt. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, how did you manage to maintain the constant increases in suspense and energy in a film that's just like such constant action? Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, the, the the structure of the suspense, you know, we've got to give that give credit to George Miller and to Margaret Sixall there because the whole. Um, I mean, this is a, you know, this is a film that the storyboards are incredible. Everything's storyboarded. George has got it in his mind. This, you know, his incredible mind is holding every detail in his head. So, you know, and that includes the whole ebb and flow. Uh, so, how do you, how do you build up to that? I, I don't know whether there's a formula, but obviously, you don't want to let anybody off until you need to be let off. So. You know, you'd. I mean, musically, you don't. If you don't want to let people off, you don't allow a chord to resolve properly. You know, let, don't let it come back to the major or whatever. Leave it, leave it hanging, so you don't finish off the pattern. And we can do that with sound all over the place. You know, um, so I, I can't tell you a formula for that, but uh, certainly, certainly, you don't want to blow your you know, blow it all too early. You need to hold back. I mean, I just finished another film, which is an action film, and that's that's a classic example of this same sort of thing where you've got a lot of action, but if each bit of action is big, then as an audience, you don't know which is the more important bit of action. So, you know, I sort of look at it now and I think, geez, we were restrained on that effect. Oh, we were restrained on that effect. Why don't we play that louder? And then the big one go, comes and I go, oh, that's right. You know, and you can sit there going, oh, that should have been bigger. That should have been louder, but importantly, we need to hold back and, and serve the story. Oh, yeah, I can make it loud, no worries. Yeah, I can put it in the surround, no worries. But if it doesn't belong like that in the story, get on your bike. It doesn't belong, you know. So, um, yeah, so the formula for all of those things to attempt to answer that question is follow the narrative about where those peaks and troughs are. And make sure that that's what you're doing sonically as well. You know, if something is a small moment leading up to it, let it be a small moment. But the other thing with um, you know the the sonic structure of uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, something that George was very emphatic about the business of handovers, which is going from one moment to another moment to another moment to another moment to another moment. So, for example, a car may come up to the side of the war rig. So on the one hand, there's Furiosa noticing. We see Furiosa to notice. So we need to hear something off screen for her to notice. Then we cut to the, the vehicle and we see the vehicle moving forward for 12 frames or, you know, a second or whatever. And then we're back to Furiosa. We've got a handover from that vehicle back over to Furiosa and what her reaction is. Is she grabbing the wheel or whatever? And back to the car and it's, you know, the blade goes into the the wheels and it's about that moment and then that's got a handover to something else now i mentioned this thing about handovers is is because you know so the, what's happening is the vehicle's coming up and it's going to cut the, the wheel so of course sonically the vehicle should be approaching the whole time and once it starts cutting it should maintain cutting but with a film where there is so much visual information and so much sonic information if you follow that rule it's mud it's just mud 
because you got the car going, you got the blade going, you got Furiosa, you got the wall rig, you got. No, that's not going to work. So, um, so George had very, very strong um, belief, and he was utterly right in um, handing over from one moment, just the same way that they do visually with the, both the picture framing and the um, the editing pace, hands over from moment to moment to moment to moment. And we, we did the same in the sound. So nothing, you know, nothing maintains. You've got to go... I mean, a good one, for example, is the... Um, or one of the good ones is the, you know, the petrol tanker explosion at the end of Reel 6 or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, if the thing starts exploding, should it be as loud as it can for the first explosion? No, probably, because the big one is the big one. So even though it might visually look big for the initial explosion, you know, that's got to be a bit underwhelming. It's got to be the last one that's the big one. You know, even though you've got the, the sonic opportunity to make the big one big, it's actually the wrong call because visually the big part is the final explosion. So that's where we've got to be big, not at the front. This, this kind of ties into something I forgot to ask earlier. Why do you think that most filmmakers' aim is to have the soundtrack of a film be subconscious and be something that the audience doesn't really notice? Well, let's look at that a different way. So the, <clears throat> uh, the, the filmmaking game and uh, you know television drama and everything all it is is storytelling that's all that's happening so to tell a story uh, you want to be paying attention to the storyteller now if you're paying attention to a storyteller and the storyteller is film guess what you don't want to notice you don't want to notice the picture cutting you don't want to notice the cinematography you don't want to notice the costumes you don't want to notice the sound you don't want to notice any of that stuff all you want to pay attention to is the story and the characters, full stop. So it's the job of every department, not just sound, to be entirely invisible. If you can be completely invisible such that the audience is invested in the story, you have succeeded. If no one notices a soundtrack that I've done, brilliant. That means that's a successful soundtrack you know, because it's just serving the story. Whereas people go, oh, that was a, a big, you know, that was a great rocket. I go, well, you know, thanks. But you're not supposed to notice a rocket. You're supposed to be going, wasn't that moment amazing when, when he pulled the thing and, and she went and did that and the rocket went kaboom. That's what you want, not the rocket sounded amazing. So it's the job of, you know, a, that's why. I mean, it's not the filmmakers wanting wanting sound to be, you know, specifically invisible or whatever. It, that's the job of sound. <laughs> like the other departments, serve the story. That's mm. it. Serve the story. Mm. If people just focused on that, we'd have far better soundtracks. <laughs> Seriously. George was telling me that uh, initially he wanted the uh, soundtrack to not have music, to have the music be dominated by the Duffwagon. Um, do you remember the realisation that it needed music? Okay, so that realisation... The, the realisation about music wasn't one that, wasn't one that I made. Uh, that's obviously one that George and Margaret had made, but I didn't realise there was a, a time when there was supposed to be no music 
because very much, um, you know, George had such full-on involvement with um, Tom Hulkenberg, you know, Junkie XL, um, for months, you know, and the music was critical to George for maintaining energy and tension, which it absolutely does. I mean, it's very relenting. The first 20 minutes of that film, you know, if you can get out of that without a stain on your underwear, then, you know, <laughs> you're going fairly well because it is so tense. And that tension has is, is very much in the visual storytelling. It's very much in the fact that we don't get any emotional let off with the narrative. It's very much in the, the sound effects and the sound design keeping us tense the whole way. And it's very much in these rhythms, these drums and driving, 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 intensity, intensity. It's just there the whole time. And then finally it stops for a moment at the end of the big you know, event with Nux's car. And, you know, it's just like 20 minutes in or 22 minutes in. Finally, the audience gets a chance to have a breath. Pretty extraordinary stuff. And then it starts again. <laughs> you know. So the music played a very strong role in maintaining that tension, mm. you know, and propelling propelling the, um, the narrative forward. And, you know, musically, it's very much, um, I mean, it's heavily percussive besides a lot of stuff going on there, but it's got a very intense percussion you know drumming it's the drums of war it's just constantly there so fantastic so um i wouldn't say that i ever conceived of the film myself without music but there were some certainly some sequences that um i believed right from the very beginning had to have absolutely no music and one, for example, is the um, a sequence when George, oh, sorry, the sequence where Max, you know, wakes up out of the sand. You know, that's just a big sound design sequence, mostly of my stuff, right? His madness stuff, right? And for that to work, you don't want music in there because we need to, as an audience, know what's going on and know that it's about his headspace. Music there would not be appropriate. There may be a little dribble of, of ambient music in there somewhere from memory, but it's not, it's not dominant. It very much sits back as it needs to. I mean, I just finished a film last week and there was uh, two very tense scenes on a train. And, uh, you know, I'm there with the director and I said, uh, I think we should turn the music off. And he said, why? And I said, well, the music is comfortable, which is not like what the scenes are. So we turned off the music and there you are on a train with the rattles and the conks and these long looks between people. It's as tense as without the music. The music actually softens it. So, um, yeah, it's a critical thing. I mean, like I, like I have said over and over again, it's all about what needs to be delivered to the story, what's going to connect, what's going to connect the audience to the intent of your storytelling. Mm. And if music is going to help, put it in. And if it's not, get rid of it. Mm. I mean, the, from an editorial point of view, often when you're um, putting a soundtrack together, or often when I'm putting a soundtrack together, I might put all sorts of things in from an editor or editorial point of view. And then when I come around to mixing it, I go, what the hell's that? Turn that off. No, that's crap. Lose that. No, no, no. Oh, yep. Yep, that works. Because um, the mixing hat is a different hat to editing. 
Mixing is very much a matter of turning things off and going, what do we need for this moment? Oh, what's that? No, no, get rid of that. A really specific thing that George mentioned was uh, the chains of Oh, Max. yes. Um, <laughs> was there... Could you, could you go into why that was important? Okay. So, uh, yeah, okay. So the chains are a massive, massive theme of the film. Who is Max? He's a guy that's trapped by his past, so he's imprisoned by his past. He's wrapped in chains metaphorically. When we meet him um, early on in the film, we don't really see his face. Once he's captured, he's got a mask on. You know, it's all about being claustrophobic. It's all about being trapped. It's all about being imprisoned. Not by the war boys and stuff, but by what's going on in his head. I mean, this, this, so much of the film is about that, about where we wind up trapping ourselves and our struggle to free ourselves from that. Were the chains important? Oh, we went over and over about the chains, you know. So first off, chains are incredibly hard to record, okay, because they're metallic, and if you use a condenser microphone, which has, you know, sharp response, it's very spiky sound. So you need to sort of use dynamic microphones, which are a lot slower. But if you've got a dynamic microphone too close to the chain, it sounds like your ears too close to the chain. So it's a really, really hard thing to record is a believable chain. It might sound crazy, but I can tell you that it was a struggle to record those trains. We had lots of Foley recordings of chains. <coughs> Excuse me. We had lots of Foley recordings of chains. And uh, I went into the – a lot of the sound effects for the film um, that I put in were things that I recorded out in the countryside in a natural acoustic, so not in a studio. So, for example, I'd do all these LCR recordings, you know, so we'd have a centre microphone, a left and right microphone, and get big chains, and I'd do actions with them on dirt or, you know, outside. Um uh, the thing about those recordings, whilst they're a little bit noisy because you, there's stuff going around them outside, they're very real. So it, it was kind of, from, from, for me, the Foley stuff was a little bit too clean and didn't really sit. And once I had that sort of grungy, dynamic, bit messy, a bit of wind in the back, you know, not perfect recordings, but believable. So, you know, for example, that scene where Max gets out of the the dirt and everything. There's a combination. There's there's Foley from two different studios, plus all of the stuff that I've recorded to do the chain. And the chain features in that scene massively, massively. And getting that right. I mean, the car door stuff. I mean, that was you know, I broke a door off a car and did all those actions in dirt and stuff so that it sounded real outside. And of course, yes, we had Foley recordings as well. We had all. You know, this is a film where we had so many inputs to the mix. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. But yeah, getting the chain, um, the chain recorded sonically was difficult. But it was a, from a sound design perspective, I'm really happy with um, with my part of the chain anyway. With in particular that scene where Furiosa and Max fight for the first time, and where Max, you know, he's got the chain around his neck and he's fiddling with it and his mask and everything all that close stuff which is all processed metallic sounds that i did 
to make it sound like it's from his perspective. You know, sorry for moving around in front of your microphone. Um, uh, yeah, so there was, you know, that the claustrophobia, you know, the being trapped by your own past and your own thoughts. Yeah, it was hugely important, the chain. Um, massive, massive, because mm. that's, that's where Max is, mm. imprisoned by his past and can't break out of it. And he can't break out of it so much that even when he's got the opportunity to in Fury Road, he chooses not to. How do you support the Australian film industry and how do you think it could grow and improve? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a very, very passionate believer in the, in the Australian film industry. I'm a very passionate believer in storytelling. I'm a very passionate believer in local um, stories and national stories. Uh, why is that? Well, many reasons, but the key thing is that uh, storytelling is actually the basis of our language. You know, if you think about it, you have a word to describe kangaroo, maybe another word for let's go kill it, and then later on when you're reading it, you might go, wasn't that awesome? And they go, what? Oh, the kangaroo, remember we went and killed it. There you go. Storytelling is inherent in our language creation because you've got a word for roo, you've got a word for killing, and then you've got to describe it some way. So... Um, in that way, any any country with their own local film industry, vital because you're talking about their national narrative, their way of looking at the world, or in our case, our way of looking at the world. So I'm a massive supporter of um, the Australian industry. In terms of uh, how we can be more successful as an industry, I think we're at about 20% of our capability. I think at the moment the Australian industry is completely underwhelming. I think we need far better uh, federal government support and uh, local government support and state government support for the filmmaking community, both in location, uh, in incentives and in post-production. Um, I think uh, our incentives to attract overseas work here are pathetic, nowhere near what they should be. Uh, I think that we have a lack of a national voice to describe to the Australian population why art is important, why storytelling is important, why is the ABC important, why is SBS important. Nobody talks about this stuff on the national stage. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all happy to talk about sport. We all get that. Oh, national pride. Well, I can tell you, when Mad Max was, uh, Fury Road was fortunate enough to pick up the sound editing um Oscar, which I'm very proud to have received on behalf of the whole team, uh, I can tell you that the sense of national pride in that achievement was massive. I felt it, and all the people around me felt it and expressed it to me. Now, we all know it. We're all proud of our industry, but there's no articulation of that on the national stage. So people go, oh, yeah, bloody ABC in it. If only we had someone there to tell us why it's important why storytelling is important. So, yes, look, I'm a massive supporter of the Australian industry, um, but I think where we are at the moment is far, far away from our capacity. We have incredible talent in this industry. Uh, a lot of our talent comes from a time long gone where we had, for example, 10BA, other, other tax schemes to attract investment and guess what we attracted a lot of investment there were a lot of rorts and the system was you know corrupt 
Yeah, like we don't have corrupt systems now. So anyway, what happened though was that directors went from directing one film to another film to another film to another film. So did cinematographers, picture editors, costume designers, sound people, etc. So we created a huge amount of talent in you know a 20-year, 15-year period in this country. It was absolutely amazing. It was such a buoyant industry, particularly in the 70s and 80s. Just incredible. Uh, so in the meantime, we've lost a lot of the investment uh, that we used to have, the incentives for people to put money in. As a result, getting money for your project is very, very hard in this industry, and you probably won't get the amount of money you want. So this is not good for the longevity of the industry. You want more money in the industry. You want more people working. You want more projects because we'll all be better. We'll do much better material and the stories will be more pertinent to our national discourse. So these are critical things that ought to be happening. And I think we're a long way from where we should be. As usual, thanks to J.D. Legulon for the music and sound design. Still's photography on this one was by Julian Patu, and thanks to Afters for the use of their facilities. I've got some really talented directors and soundies lined up for interviews in the next few weeks, and I look forward to getting back into the podcast. So stay tuned and see you next time. <laughs>